Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation for those who own, manage or protect intellectual property. Hi everyone, my name's Chris Hall. I'm a partner here at Appleyard Lees and I head up our IP team in Cambridge. In today's podcast, we're going to be speaking with commercial contract specialist and our very own head of commercial IP contracts, Amrit Jetwar. Amrit joined Appleyard Lees in November 2023 after previously gaining a wealth of experience as head of legal at a Cambridge-based patent and trademark attorney firm. Amrit's specialism covers a broad spectrum of commercial matters, but with a particular focus on founder-CEO startups, equity-backed early-stage technology companies, and SMEs, commonly in the life science, biotech, and pharma spaces, touching on the hot topic of artificial intelligence. Amrit's helped and guided multiple startups through the complex maze of commercial IP issues as they take their journey from initial investment through to the exit stages of the business which leads us nicely to the theme of today's podcast, in which Amrit will draw on her knowledge of working with early stage companies to guide us through some of the key commercial issues impacting early high growth companies, including the contractual must-haves, distilling some of the contractual jargon, and providing a very brief roadmap through each core stage of a startup life. So Amrit, before we get into the nitty gritty of contracts, what is it that you particularly enjoy about working with startups and commercial IP? Thanks, Chris, and thank you for that introduction. What do I most enjoy? I think I've found when working with those close to the invention, the original technology, they are really excited about what they've discovered, what that could mean in terms of impact on the world, be it through sustainable energy solutions or early detection of disease. What I find is such founders and scientists, they're really keen to share details of that work discuss advantages, their hopes and dreams of where and what that technology can do. And I always find that enthusiasm quite infectious and that opportunity to be part of progressing that into something tangible or commercial is is probably a big part of why I do what I do. I can imagine seeing it from the start to the end is quite an exciting thing to be able to experience, I expect. So we know we're looking at early stage companies today, but Which particular sectors do you think this podcast is going to be most relevant for? So I think I wanted to kind of bring my background and what I've been doing over the last eight years into into this podcast. And the sectors I have worked most closely with are the biotech, life sciences, med tech, really looking at companies that are providing creative innovative solutions across science and technology so I think actually it probably can have applicability to those sorts of companies. So mentioned the word startup a few times and for those that don't necessarily know what startup means or what it is so perhaps Amrit you can explain to us what is a startup and why Is commercial IP contracts an important thing to them? So I would say a startup or also regarded as early stage company would be something that had a little bit of funding. What you tend to find is there's some seed money that could be through private funding or through equity or venture capitalists. There is usually a founder CEO the scientists or the individuals involved in developing the technology to that point 
have roles within the company, perhaps as a chief science officer or chief technology officer. You, you may even find some of these companies have business consultants engaged to kind of guide that business through to the next stage. Just, you know, you've got this technology, now what? You won't commonly see perhaps the engagement of legal services beyond what was needed to set up the corporate structure in the first place. And so where you find the gap in some of these startup companies is the provision of legal advice. So why do you think that is that they're not seeking commercial IP advice? And why is it important that they seek that advice at an early stage? Given that they are early stage, these resources are quite limited. So I think in an ideal world, they would perhaps like to have that early stage input. But with any new business, it's making sure they're allocating resources where they deem it's most necessary. I, of course, would say that it is very much necessary at that early stage, only because that IP is the very crux of the value of the business. And it's worthwhile making sure that it's protected to allow them to capitalize it on the, in the future to ensure they're not losing any other opportunity to commercialize in the future by perhaps being blocked by others who come across this technology. And also with any business, they'll they'll want to make some sort of return on the investment. And it's even worthwhile thinking of that exit strategy at an early stage, because I think it helps form your IP and your business strategy. Okay, well, what are we going to do with this? And if you look like a company that's protecting it, you make yourself that much more attractive to future investors, to future partners, collaborators, and and buyers. Samrit, you mentioned protecting IP there. And I suppose this is an IP podcast and the listeners will hear a lot about protecting their IP by filing a patent. But from a commercial angle, what does that mean to you and protecting your IP? So IP is quite broad in the sense that it's the obvious ones are your inventions that are protected by patents, your trademarks and logos invented through the filing of and registering of trademarks. But something some, some, something that is often missed is the intangible, the know-how, the data, that information, that confidential information that you have at the very beginning, which is quite common with early stage companies, where you're not quite ready or in a position to file a patent, you're still developing that technology, you're still trying to get it to a stage where there's something that is patentable which is where your patent attorney really comes in and, and into their own to help advise on that. So you want to make sure that you're using the various contractual agreements that are available to help you do so, be it the confidential information through confidentiality agreements, be it the creation of further know-how and data through service agreements or collaboration agreements with other partners. It's that angle that I think that is perhaps not paid the attention that it quite deserves. You touched on there about a confidentiality agreement, often known as NDAs, I suppose, in that funky acronym that you often hear. And and I think from at least my experience of dealing with this, and it'll be interesting to hear your 
view on it as well, Amrit, that people can often think that an NDA is quite straightforward or quite simple or is the key agreement that they need at a very early stage. And you know, I'd be interested to hear what your experience of working with startups is like and seeing the types of NDAs that are drafted and perhaps you know, one of the reasons why at that stage they should seek legal advice and you know, not necessarily take the NDA that they receive from another third party as, as written as, as, as gospel and why sometimes you need to check those terms I'm thinking, for example, the NDA might sneak in there some intellectual property provisions about future IP rights and, and things like that. Whereas I wonder if you agree here that an NDA should really just be very simply governing the conversations that those parties are having. And I was just interested to hear your experience of that. I always like to advise my clients, and this is how I frame the use of the NDA, the use of the NDA is the initial part of that conversation that's going to assist them assess what each party has to offer. But realistically, you want to move on from that NDA quite swiftly to something more commercial, be it a service agreement, be it a collaboration, whatever the intention behind sharing of confidential information. It's it's not an agreement where there needs to be a long term to it. You, you know, sometimes I see NDAs that have a five year term, and and I think to myself, well, what's the aim of this? Are we are we going to be moving on to something more commercial to 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 get a deliverable to have something that we can move on? Because the NDA, like you say, is misused where people try to put in language where the results of any discussions that these two parties have under an NDA suddenly may generate IP. And if it's not carefully crafted or reviewed, you could find yourself in a situation where you've shared information with a potential partner and they've taken your idea. That's obviously an extreme, but I think that's the cautionary tale the NDA is obviously seen and can be seen as the simple document. With these early stage companies, there is sometimes the fear and sense of urgency that we need to get these NDAs in place as soon as possible so not to lose the interest of that third party, which then leads them to making decisions of accepting a third party template because it's probably the path of least resistance any perceived delay may scare off that interested third party. And that really is where your commercial IP solicitor can give you the benefit of their experience in that industry to say, actually, if you take charge of the terms of your NDA, it makes you look like more of a serious contender. You might actually have something really valuable and worthwhile because you're going to such lengths to protect it. I think that's a really important point, isn't it? You know, it's there's there's no harm in seeking that advice and pushing back on terms if you feel that those terms are may injure the company later down the line. And something that I I see far too regularly, I think, is where that NDA starts to fall between the lines of an NDA and the, and the collaboration terms or where the parties have entered the NDA and are in some sort of 
false understanding that that will then govern their future relationship and everything to do with the IP rights in the future. And I think it's really important to stress there that the NDA is really there just to discuss your idea and perhaps to secure some funding so that that third party can understand your idea better. But really, once you start putting pen to paper and sharing ideas, then that's the next stage, isn't it? And what sort of what would that look like for the early stage startup once they've had those discussions with the investor or potential collaborator? What's the next stage for them? The next stage, on the assumption that you've had successful discussions and dialogue, and you're both interested in progressing your idea with that partner, and the partner themselves are interested in perhaps putting their ideas into the mix and you've got something tangible that you want to progress with the next stage could look like one of one of several things it could look like a service agreement where you've now engaged this partner to run preclinical tests for you for example it could look like a material transfer agreement where you have now decided that you're going to send your innovative piece of material for further testing and and then that can also form the basis of an of a further commercial agreement the collaboration the further research and development of that piece of ip or that piece of technology you could be looking into r&d agreements uh, and that could also be with industrial partners but also university academic partners those partners are not necessarily just limited to england that you know these partnerships can can be worldwide particularly in the US so we've got through the non-disclosure agreement stage startups had some initial conversations with collaborator and funder and then they're entering into some more meaty agreements so we're looking at sort of like you mentioned there and material transfer agreements they're sending actually physically sending some of their materials to a third party which could be quite scary for i suppose some of these innovators because ultimately the innovation the intellectual property rights might actually be held in those materials so what should those parties be looking out for in those agreements what are the red flags if they receive a draft from the collaborator both in terms of ownership and also in terms of you know, what could damage them financially in the future, I suppose. From your perspective, at least, what are the commercial terms that they really need to be looking out for? The obvious one for me is the ownership point, making sure that any results generated through that performance under be it the MTA or collaboration agreement is very clear. It's ensuring that the IP that you had existing prior to entering into that relationship remains under your ownership and under your control. You're giving permission to use, but you're not disposing of it. You're not giving rights that can then be used by further third parties. If you're generating results based from your pre-existing IP and it couldn't be done without your pre-existing IP, you want to make sure that you can use that result, that data, that information for your own purposes. It's making sure that the balance of power between the two parties is fair. 
if it's your IP and you're asking somebody to run some tests for which you are paying them for, it wouldn't be within your reasonable expectation that therefore that party running those tests then therefore owns all the results. That's not the expectation you should have. So ownership, giving rights of use, protecting your background IP is really quite important aspects to get advice on. The warranties and the liabilities are also really important. You want to make sure that, for example, say under a collaboration, you've given your IP to be used in a specific way. You want to make sure that if it's used outside of that purpose, that you, in, from a liability perspective, are protected. From the partner, they also want to make sure that when you're giving them some information or giving them some IP, that you are legally allowed to give it. So they'll be asking from you warranties. Now, these warranties can be drafted quite widely. They could be perhaps going over what is necessary. And therefore, in those sorts of situations where there can be long-term consequences of what you agree at this collaboration stage, it is always quite important to have legal advice to review what those warranties should look like. So we've got to the stage now where I suppose we've got the core agreements in place and we see that the startup is growing. Perhaps we could say it's at its growth stage. What what would you expect next to happen in in that particular company? What are they? What stage are they moving to next, Amrit? And what sort of commercial issues do they, does that company need to consider? So I wouldn't say there's necessarily a definitive line as to when it starts moving and progressing. There will be a, a number of events that may occur where the company needs to now start looking at itself and its business strategy, its IP strategy, and looking to see where they want the business to go commercially. They may have received encouraging results through these studies, these preclinical studies I referred to earlier under various service agreements or collaborations. There may be publications based on the technology that they have developed and authored with academic institutions. They are looking to raise more money based on some of the successes they've had through their results. There may be additional patent applications looking to scale up the business, be it through its people. So before I was talking about the founder CEO, the chief science officer, perhaps a a consultant, but you might start getting in a, a study director. You may start getting in human resources, your IT function. There might be bits now that you're bolting onto your business either through employing those aspects yourself or contracting them out. So what we find a lot, what I have found a lot, is being contracted almost into these organisations as almost like an external in-house council. So not quite big enough to have your own legal department, big enough to have your general counsel, but you have a greater understanding and more control of what you want your agreements to look like. You're understanding that collaborators are expecting more formal arrangements. They become more complex, more risk, 
potentially more liabilities. And there is an adjustment that needs to be made where you were reacting when you were a startup because you were very keen and eager for the interest. You are now taking over control of your terms because you realize that you've got many now and there needs to be some consistency. There needs to be some uniformity. Otherwise, you could find yourself breaching them inadvertently if you are changing terms. You are trying to come to a company-wide approach to your contracts, um, a level of consistency. So there is this need now more so of the legal provision. Now, we've touched on, on many aspects of, of the contractual issues. Um, is there anything else that you can think of that is important to the startup going through these earlier stages? And, it, and if so, what are, what are those? And if, if not, if we've co- mostly covered the key issues, what's, what's the next stage for that, that company? So I touched upon earlier that when you're looking at and developing your IP strategy, your business strategy, there does have to be some consideration given to what I will loosely term as the exit. When and how are we going to commercially exploit this IP to give a return on the investment? Is that the investment that that you've put in as the founder? Is that the investment that your shareholders have given? And that exit could be through a sale of that IP. That exit could be through a licensing of that IP, perhaps to partners who will exclusively license all that IP and take the development forward. Perhaps you as a company have got as far as you want to go. You were in a position to develop the technology, but perhaps you're not in a position where, or you don't want to be in a position where you're going to now market it. Perhaps you don't have the global networks or a way to internationally develop, say, say a product, for example. It's useful then to then engage partners through licensing to bring your product to a wider audience. So when looking at that return on investment, if you're selling the IP, that's a lot more straightforward in terms of it will likely be a lump sum and the results of that quite self-explanatory. With licensing, how you make a financial return on that licensing arrangement is a bit more complex. There may be royalties to consider and where royalties can be quite straightforward is if the IP relates to a single product with a single application and it's quite straightforward to determine the the money you're going to make back. However, if that IP actually is something that would be enhanced if leveraged with, say, another piece of technology and the person licensing or the entity licensing it is saying, yes, it's all fair and well, I'm going to license this technology from you, but actually I'm going to have to do some additional work, I'm going to do some additional development. What you might find over time is the royalty you are expecting may become diluted as other technologies in license and develop. And that value of that initial licensed IP comes down. Again, it's having that legal input 
but with a commercial context because it's not quite straightforward as drafting a you know a standard royalty clause you really need to understand the technology where it's going how it will be further developed what problems might there be with this agreement in the future i've seen that as well where you you have connected ip let's say the startup's innovation it requires a license of some other technology for example and that can, might be quite minor in some instances, but because they entered into relationships at an early stage with that other party, I've, I've seen it where those terms can be really restrictive, you know, in terms of future collaboration or in future commercialization, sorry, of that technology where because maybe that third party had deeper pockets, they felt an obligation, they've in, entered into a sort of 10 20 years worth of, of, of royalty payments, which, you know, like I said, then dilutes their own revenue that they're achieving from the core innovation and takes it away. So super important to speak to a, an IP lawyer like yourself at a very early stage to make sure that they're not giving away or compromising on too much. And I suppose that, that leads me to, I suppose, any anecdotal ev- sort of examples that you have. Um, Rick, from your experience working with these companies who then maybe have approached you not necessarily at the startup stage but later on and they've come to you for your advice and have you ever had any examples where it was really obvious that they've had to now compromise on on the exit i suppose the exit stage whether that's the amount that they're selling it for or royalty payments just because they they didn't get all the kind of ducks in a row should we say at the beginning of those agreements Certainly, I've come across situations um, where, for example, you know, a company has been engaged to develop a certain technology, and in doing so, under said collaboration agreement, has given the other party a really broad license to their existing IP. You can see from the other person's perspective, the other party's perspective that they are perhaps paying a lot of money to have this technology developed and they don't want to be in a situation when they get that, say, let's call it a deliverable, let's call it a result or or that IP back, this this technology solution, that when they come to utilise it, that they will be caught infringing on some other IP. So they will ask for quite a broad licence to somebody's existing IP Unfortunately, what had happened in giving that broad license, it meant that the company who were doing the developing couldn't then utilize what they learned through that process, the improvements that they had made to their already existing knowledge for anybody else in that particular. And I think they did mean to restrict it to a a particular field. And just by circumstance of drafting, perhaps it was a power imbalance between the two parties. I mean, there was a lot of money being paid for this development work, and it would have been a, it was a great start for this small company, but it made it very difficult then to unpick through the collaboration, and it required amendment. So it's not it's not an unforgivable situation. It's you. you that's, that's the beauty of law, I suppose, and contracts. You know, we can provide solutions, and so through amendment, we were able to secure the rights 
that the company needed to continue its business. It wasn't meant to be a one-hit wonder. It wants to replicate what it's doing for others in obviously a non-competing, non-conflicting way. And so you, you, you are presented with situations where legal advice wasn't obtained, again, due to that urgency, lack of resources, what's on the table is just so attractive. But I like to think that when you're coming through that growth stage, when everything's kind of slow down and you're, you know, getting everything in, in your, all your ducks in a row, that's a position where you can then do an IP audit or part of an IP audit, kind of do a diligence exercise as to the contracts you've already entered into. You know, new people are coming into the business, new investors. This process will be happening anyway. And looking at the earliest stage possible to fix it so that it doesn't impact you when you're looking to do something more significant towards the exit. I like that. It's the, that's the beauty of law and it can be fixed. That's a good summary of, <laughs> of, of the potential issues and how they can be ramified. Any, any sort of, I suppose, there, uh, we've gone through the stages and, and summarised all the key points. Anything that you think is worth summarising as the key takeaway points before we end this podcast? One of the main points that I'd like people to take away from this podcast would be to strongly encourage early stage companies to get that early input of legal advice as much as it may be perceived as a stressor on what are already scarce resources there are lawyers out there who understand and who are agile enough efficient who can really get to the heart of the of the issue in a way that is economical for the company it's also an investment into that very business which realizes itself by making that business that much more attractive by having that early legal input you are guided you are protected and it's it can only enhance how the business is perceived in terms of just going back to that more cost effective economical use of the legal resources around around a business you know, we, we touched upon using precedents which you know having that bank of precedent making that early investment in those precedents could assist in any future negotiation i think that's the main point isn't it you know ultimately you can't you can't cover everything and each company will come to a yes i suppose yourself i'm right with uh, a different complex issue it might be straightforward in some instances but often it's very multifaceted in that there might be multiple players involved multiple innovators multiple funders and ultimately the best advice is to get someone on board at an early stage you can review everything with an eye to the future of that business as well and really thinking ahead and and, and perhaps being a little bit more impartial um, like yourself would be to look outside of the initial excitement and to uh, address the the red flags when it it comes to a potential exit in the future and and I think a lot of that that advice you and and recommendations and key points that you made today are super important and I hope that, that our listeners today took away some some really useful nuggets of of information but obviously if there are any other elements or issues that our listeners come away today and thought actually I could do with speaking to someone then at, at Apple Yardley's we understand that, that sort of seeking that legal advice 
can be daunting sometimes and perhaps the perception is that it's costly or something that's more akin to the big London law firms. But I think with ourselves, we're a full-service IP firm. We're absolutely here to provide a, a flexible alternatives. So like I said, if you have any of these issues or you're currently growing through a growth stage, you're going through an early stage and you just want to get some tips, hints, advice, then obviously feel free to, to ping us an email or pick up the phone and we'd be more than happy to, to speak to you. And Amrit and our team, absolutely more than happy to discuss any of these issues that we've addressed in today's podcast. And lastly, thank you, Amrit, for your time today. I thought that was really insightful and I've taken away some key points from there as well. And I hope everyone else has as well. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Leeds. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialist to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Leeds or email us at ip at appleyardleeds.com.